Welcome to the podcast of the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary, a space for ongoing dialogue among Asian American scholars, ministry leaders, and activists. My pleasure and privilege now to introduce to you our next speaker, Dr. Sujin Chung, who is an assistant professor of practical theology at Azusa Pacific University in California. I consider myself a practical theologian, and so it's nice to, to have a fellow practical theologian here. And even more excitingly, she also serves as director of general education under the office of the provost at Azusa Pacific. So you want practical theologians overseeing the curriculum, by the way, uh, not necessarily the systematicians. Uh, she is the author of Adopting for God, the Mission to Change America Through Transnational Adoption. That was published by New York University Press in 2021. And she's published a number of articles and book chapters on, on trans-Pacific dynamics in Korean-American Christianity. She is also the associate editor of the journal Missiology, an international review, and serves as a panelist on the Humanities Initiative at the National Endowment for the Humanities. She's a principal investigator of the Hispanic Serving Institution Grant and Vocation Academy Grants funded by NEH and the Council of Independent Colleges. So you can see uh, from Sujin's sort of record that she's deeply concerned about education, deeply concerned about formation, and, uh, and we're just honored and privileged to have her speak with us today a little bit about her perspectives on the trans-Pacific dimensions of Korean-American Christianity today. So Sujin, the floor is yours. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Law, and thank you everyone for joining me on a Saturday. And I was want to especially thank Princeton Theological Seminary Center for um, Asian American Christianity and Overseas Ministry Study Center for hosting me, inviting me to this important conversation. So I'm really excited to talk about Korean American Christianity as a basis of liberation and belonging. And as I begin, I want to start with a question and feel free to put this answers on your chat box. Um, so when you're invited to an Asian American friend's house, what is the first thing that you do as you enter the house? Don't be shy. I know there are a lot of Asian Americans here. <laughs> you take off your shoes. Exactly. And why do you do that? You take off your shoes. Respect, cleanliness, very good. So out of respect of their culture, you take off their shoes, right? And this is precisely what C.S. Song is trying to say in his book, Tell Us Our Names. He says, tell us our names, not such names as Charles or Helen. Tell us whether you know something about Moti or Guatama, and not always about Plato or Aristotle. Tell us if you know our history and what it means for us, and not always about your own history and what it must also mean for us. And tell us whether you see and understand the struggles that have been going on for centuries in our body, heart, and spirit, and not just unburden your concerns for a lost soul. So I really resonate with this book because when I came to the United States, I was 11 years old and I barely spoke any English. And I was thrown into this winter camp and they all asked me what my name was. And I said my name in a Korean pronunciation because my, I didn't speak English. And I said, Sujin. And they were like, what? Like, I, I don't understand what you're saying. Um, so I repeated myself a couple of times, Sujin, Sujin. And eventually they were like, oh my goodness, I give up. Let's just call her Sue. So for the entire week, 
they called me Sue. And you may think this is a small, a insignificant, cute little story. But for an 11-year-old, that memory stuck with me for a very long time. And when my parents asked me if I wanted an English name because my two younger brothers already had English names, I remember telling them no. And the reason being the simple answer of I want them to say my Korean name. I want them to say my name. And as an 11-year-old, I think I lacked the language to articulate what I was feeling at that time. But looking back, that little kid was trying to say, I want to feel belonged without having to compromise my identity. And I'm not saying people with English names compromise their identity. That's not what I'm saying at all. But because of that particular experience that I had, that's what I felt at that time. And I wanted them to say my name because it's a name that my parents and grandparents gave me. So I wanted them to say my story, my name, and my ancestors' stories and their history. So that is what we're going to do as we enter into the sacred space of Korean Americans. We're going to symbolically take up our shoes and enter into the sacred space together. So this question of being Asian and Christian, how, what does it mean to be Asian and Christian at the same time? That has been a question that boggled many people's mind for centuries because oftentimes being Asian and Christian seem like a mutually exclusive thing. So for those of you who know, what does it mean to call an Asian American a banana? And I, I promise I won't be offended. Okay, I'm just going to say it because you don't want to offend me. It means you're yellow on the outside and white on the inside, right? And Hua Yung, a Malaysian theologian, is trying to say in his book, Mangoes or Bananas, we have to have an authentically yellow Christianity or a mango Christianity. And he said, if we're honest with ourselves, and if we look at Asian or Asian American Christianity, it may look like an Asian Christianity on the outside. But if we look deeply, it's basically a simple replication of Western theology, Western church history, Western liturgical practices, and Western systems of belief. And he's trying to say, in order to have prophetic voice in our own context, and to speak truth into our context, we must have a thoroughly authentic Asian Christianity, like a mango Christianity. So that's what we're going to do, or at least try to do in this session, of craft crafting a unique theology of suffering and belonging by using Korean independence movement as a case study. So Korean, American, uh, Korean historians generally agree to divide the Japanese occupation of Korea into three periods. Uh, military role, cultural role, and ethnocide. And as you can tell from the name, the military role was a very direct uh, military role, and all cultural activities were forbidden during this time, and there were a lot of heavy censorship. And came the March 1st movement in 1919, and this is when Japanese government started to receive a lot of international attention, and they felt the need to put up this international front. And that's precisely what they did. So they transitioned into a cultural role. So it may sound better because it sounds better than military role. But in, in reality, police forces actually increased during this time and censorship remained just as bad. And arguably, the worst period is ethnocide or cultural genocide. And this is a very much a forced assimilation and where the Japanese government really tried to completely el eliminate Korean culture. They were not allowed to use Korean names. Again, this theme of name and naming is going to be very important. 
They were not allowed to use Korean languages and any religious or nationalist or political activities were completely outlawed during this time. And this period also coincides with Japanese invasion of Manchuria in 1931. So this is a time where Japanese government really tried to exude their imperialistic power over Asia. So what is Christianity's role in all this? The most obvious and quantifiable one is that out of the 33 signers of the Korean Declaration of Independence, almost 50% of them were Christians. More specifically, 16 of them were Christians and 15 of them were followers of Chondogyo, which is a Korean indigenous religion that has its root in Tonga, and two Buddhists. And out of 16 Christians, 11 people were pastors, three people were lay leaders um, associated with various Christian organizations, and two people were elders. In addition to these 33 signers, there are very notable Christians who are also freedom fighters like Seo Jae-pil, Yoo Gwan-soon, and An chang and even the Japanese government started to notice that Christianity was a very big um, source of impetus towards Korean independence movement. So they started to actually torture and kill people in a very religious way. So if you see here, you can see people are hung on a cross. And feel free to read this quote from the Christian Herald that was published in 1919. So according to a Japanese statistics that was published in 1919, Around 20,000 people were arrested after the March 1st movement. And out of 20,000, 20% of the people who were arrested were Christians. And more than 50% of the religious arrestees were Protestants specifically. So you may not think that's a lot of, you know, that's not very significant, but you have to understand back then, 1919, Protestants only made up of approximately 1% of the population. So proportionately speaking, that is a huge, that is a very significant statistics. So I have divided the role of Christianity into three parts. The first one is theology of suffering and belonging, how Christianity helped these Korean ancestors to have that unique theology. And second one is how Christianity gave them a sense of self-determination. And third one is how this um, fusion between the Korean independence movement and, the, and Christianity mobilized women and gave them a sense of belonging and a voice and a sense of self-actualization. So let's look at them one by one. So theology of suffering, um, after the March 1st movement, there were multiple manse movements and manse in Korean means long live or forever. So these Koreans would go around their villages and they would shout manse, which means long live Korean independence. And Japanese government specifically forbade that phrase, manse, and they said whoever utters this phrase is going to be killed. And on March 8th, there was yet another manse movement, and the same thing happened. People were killed, many people were arrested. And the following Sunday, when they were having a worship service, one of the hymnals that they sang was manse panso, which is Rock of Ages. And as you may have noticed, the first word is manse. So as they were singing this hymnal, they were very timid at first. They didn't want to die. They wanna, didn't want to be killed. But as they were singing verse 2 and verse 3 and verse 4, their voices started to get louder and louder, and tears were running down their faces. And towards the end, they were singing on top of their lungs. And um, if we look at the verse, this theme of suffering and pain and clinging to the cross and participating 
and the passion of Christ is a predominant theme of this hymnal. So verse three reads, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to you for dress, helpless look to you for grace. Wash me, Savior, or I die. So this theme of suffering and pain and participating on the passion of Christ and clinging to the cross was very much a theme of their uh, motivation. And if we look at this call to prayer, which is basically like a prayer request sent by the freedom fighters, the golden text is quoted as Esther 4, 13 through 17. And Esther 4, 17 is that famous passage where Esther says, if I perish, I perish. So these Christians and freedom fighters knew full well that they could die if they participate in this freedom movement, this Muslim movement. But it was worth it for them because not only was it trying to save their country, but they also felt called by God to participate in this liberation of their calling and liberation of their country. So they felt also participating in the passion of Jesus Christ and suffering of Jesus Christ. So they had motivations that are political as as religious. So we have these political and religious motivations intermingled in this political movement. And the sense of belonging or cultivating belonging becomes very important for Korean Americans specifically living abroad. And Korean Americans were relatively in an advantageous position because they were physically removed from Japanese violence, right? And they were also relatively stable financially compared to their Korean and Manchuria counterparts. So they were able to raise a lot of money. And they already, 40%, more than 40% of the people who came to the United States were Christians, but they converted to Christianity for various reasons. Um, for example, they viewed Christianity as a Western religion. So they wanted to assimilate better into the U.S. context. And some of them, they simply wanted to participate in the Korean independence movement through churches. But most importantly, these immigrants and refugees wanted a sense of belonging. And churches provided that space. Um, so churches became a place where Koreans became even more intensely Korean. And they placed as a role of repository of strengthening their ethnic and nationalist identities. Um, and historian Benedict Anderson calls his heightened sense of identity and nationalism away from home, um, long distance nationalism. And some scholars even argue that this heightened sense of nationalism is caused by a very difficult transition into the migrant life. And this was certainly true for Korean Americans who were doubly traumatized as exiles and unassimilable aliens and fit for membership. So if we look at this little photograph that was printed as an advertisement for the Korean American Victory Fund, we see a Korean flag and on the backdrop, we see the American flag. So this is symbolizing the collaboration between Korean and American nations. So Korean Americans back then, well, even now, are pretty smart, right? And they started to phrase their argument by saying, my love and my patriotism and nationalism towards Korea and my love for the United States are not mutually exclusive. And they started to use this as an opportunity to assimilate into the American context. Um, that argument wasn't necessarily well received. They didn't receive a lot of um, attention. So we see again and again throughout how much the Korean Americans wanted to belong in the U.S. context and again and again how the U.S. government and American society kind of rejects them over and over again. So moving on to our second point of self-determination. 
So before I talk about Christianity, I want to talk a little bit about Woodrow Wilson's 14 points. That was famously uh, his famous speech of 1918, one year prior to the independence movement. We're going to focus a little bit on the fifth point, and I'm not going to read it because it's tiny, <laughs> um, but he doesn't use the word self-determination yet, but he introduces the concept of self-determination. And a month later, in his address to Congress, actually, he does use the word self-determination. And let's read this together. And I quote, national aspirations must be respected. People now may now be dominated and governed only by their own consent. Self-determination is not a mere phrase. It is an imperative principle of action. Um, so Korean Americans, being really smart again, um, started to phrase their argument in this Wilsonian language, and they actually brought the petition to Woodrow Wilson himself and said, look, you're the one who said this. You're the one who says self-determination. So help us liberate our country. And historian Erez Manella actually argues that this independence movement, Korean independence movement, was part of a bigger Wilsonian movement along with countries like Egypt, China, India, and et cetera. And if we look at the Korean independence document, a declaration of independence, um, let me just read the first sentence. We hereby declare that Korea is an, is an independent state and that Koreans are a self-governing people. We proclaim it to the nations of the world in affirmation of the principle of equality of all nations. So we definitely see this notion of self-determination, self-governance, and equality of all people, right? So you may think that Wow, so Woodrow Wilson is a singular force behind this Korean independence movement. And some historians have argued that. Um, but I would cautiously say no, because that wasn't the only force and that wasn't the only factor that motivated the Korean independence movement and the notion of self-determination. And one example is the Nevius method of church planting or the Nevius plan. So this plan was introduced by John Livingston Nevius, um, and it was a development of a pre-existing theory that was developed by Henry Venn and Rufus Anderson. So Henry Venn and Rufus Anderson are basically trying to say all local indigenous churches must have these three principles of self-support, self-government, and self-propagation. And Nevius developed this plan further and introduced it to Korea in 1890. So you see the timeline, right? So before Woodrow Wilson introduced the 14 points, Korean uh, indigenous Christians and freedom fighters such as An chang and many, 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 many others were already influenced by these three self-model and three self-church. So they borrowed this um, three self-model and they reconstructed this covenantal relationship between Yahweh and his people to fit into the constitutional relationship. And they even argue that because all men and women are equally created in the image of God, all men and women have equal right to have just, liberated, and independent nation. And missionaries, as they were, you know, starting to frame their language in a Christian language, missionary also started to participate. And this is when, finally, Korean Americans started to get some attention. So you might think it's great because missionaries are getting helping them, but I tend to agree with historian Richard Kim when he says this close alliance with missionary actually eclipsed Korean voices under the shadow of American political hegemony. And unfortunately, this is what we see again and again and again throughout history when Korean Americans or Asian Americans more broadly align themselves closely with the dominant culture, U.S. culture and white supremacist system. 
All right, moving on to our final points, the role of women. So on the left side, we see an open letter written by Korean Christian women to American Christian women. And it's using a very specific Christian language and it's actually addressed to sisters in Christ. It says, we're Christians and we believe that Christian sympathy will not be denied. So we request that all of our sister in the Christian nations will pray and help us liberate Korea. Um, so this is very much in sync with women's missiology, women's work for women, where women around the world will try to uplift other women around the world by bringing education and Bible studies and helping like liberation causes like this. And on the right side, we see a letter written to the president, Woodrow Wilson, by school-aged girls. And I'm not going to read the whole thing, but let me just read parts of it because I think it's really important. Um, and this is written in the context of Paris Peace Conference. And I quote, Insomuch as the members of the Paris Peace Conference are giving attention to correct principles and the rights of all men, we girls have been shamefully treated and have suffered much disgrace. But whom can we try cry to redress our wrongs? Where can we go for help? We have no power, we have no men to go to, but we believe in God that he may move you to hear us. Mr. Wilson, President of Great America, we look on you as a father. Hear our Declaration of Independence and tell it to the world is our prayer. So I find this letter so interesting because on the one hand, we definitely see this theme of self-determination and self-governance and independence of all nations. But on the other hand, we see a hint of colonial mentality that Dr. Katana so eloquently explained and a little bit of missionary paternalism where missionaries are viewed as a fatherly figure. So even within the same, con same text, we see two different ideologies at work with each other. So I think that's really important as we have a nuanced understanding of various historical events. Okay, our final point. Um, Korean-American women also play very pivotal roles, and these are the many, many organizations that they made. But I'm going to focus a little bit on the Korean Women's Relief Society, which was a spontaneous organization that was initiated in March 1919. So they were so successful, they expanded to four local chapters in each of the major islands of Hawaii. And they raised approximately $200,000. And you may think this is not a significant number, but this is 1919. So this is a lot of money. And Korean Americans and plantations and small shops, they didn't make a lot of money to begin with. So this is a, a, a significant amount of money that was sent to a Korean provisional government and Korean Independence Army in China and Manchuria, and even helped people who lost their families during the March 1st movement. So the way these money, uh, these women raised money is where I give them so much credit and so much respect. These women went around their neighborhood, door knocking every single door, selling kimchi and tteok, which is Korean rice cake and reprints of Korean Declaration of Independence. And this is precisely why you don't want to mess with Korean aunties and grandmas, because they were truly the worker bees of this Korean independence movement. Um, just like Dana Robert rightly says that uh, American women missionaries were the worker bees of the American um, missionary movement, but oftentimes men served as a face of movement, right? And in the same way, these Korean Americans were the worker bees. They were the engine behind the Korean independence movement. 
while men often serve as a face. So we know a lot of men's names, right? Lee Seung-man, An Chang-woo, Seo Jae-pi, right? But we often don't have records of these women's names. Again, the theme of naming. Because we often have images of them, but we have no clue what their names were because there are just no historical records. So this is very much in sync with, um, you know, the, the lack of historical resources when it comes to women in world Christianity. Okay, so we're moving on a little bit. We're pivoting a little bit to, so what now? So what does it mean for us now? And what does the Bible say about theology of suffering and belonging? So I'm going to talk a little bit about Moses' story because I think there's a lot of overlap between Moses' story and the Korean American experience. So his story can be divided into three parts of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So orientation is where he experiences life for the first time, right? And when he was found by Pharaoh's daughter, again, the theme of naming becomes important. He was given the name Moses because he was drawn out of water. And he's orientation was to life was smooth sailing. He was given all the power and privilege as a prince of Egypt and a military ruler of Egypt. However, we all know that he quickly experiences disorientation. And Mo when Moses sees in his people, his uh, Israelites, he is very much drawn to their community. And when he sees an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, he eventually murders this Egyptian person. And the following day, when he tries to med mediate um, two Hebrews fighting, he was met with a very cold reply. Basically, they're saying, who do you think you are? Who made you a ruler and judge over us? So he quickly learns that he is not fully accepted by the Hebrew community and he's not fully Egyptian either. So what does he do? He runs away and he marries a Midianite woman and he finds a new home. But again, the naming, he names his son Gelshom, which means um, I have been a foreigner or alien in a foreign land. So that naming also shows that, that he is not fully identifying himself as a Midianite either. And my good colleague, Federico Roth, an uh, Old Testament scholar, says that this identity deconstruction of Moses is a quadruple displacement. The triple displacement all already happens because he's not fully Hebrew, not fully Egyptian, and not fully Midianite. But the fourth displacement comes from him rejecting himself. So his lack of identity actually becomes his identity, his fourth displacement. But thank God that our God is good and God invites Moses back into the state of reorientation. And in a burning bush narrative that Dr. Law so eloquently expressed, um, Moses is called to call out his people, liberate his people from Egypt. And Moses trembling is saying, who am I? What if they ask for a name? And you may think he's just being lazy or he doesn't want to do his job, but this is more than a simple insecurity. This is a fundamental questioning, a fundamental conflicted understanding of his identity, the fourth displacement that Roth was talking about. And this part gets me every single time. I'm going to try not to cry. Um, instead of reprimanding Moses, what does God say? God gives him a promise of his presence. And God gives him an assurance. And he says, I am who I am. Go to your people and tell them I am has sent you. So Yahweh gives Moses his name. I am who I am. And I love how Roth puts it. Um, I am who and what and where and when and how and even why you will discover I am. 
I am what you will discover me to be. So this undefined nature of God's name shows God's willful and voluntary entry into a space of dynamic, creative, and hyphenated state. And Moses finally learns two things, which is, first of all, he's not alone because God's presence is promised. But secondly, the suffering and pain and the hyphenated state that he was feeling all his life was also a place where Yahweh dwells. It's also a place where Yahweh meets Moses very intimately. And not only that, God also redeems that pain and suffering and positions Moses in a multi-positionness. So Moses going from, goes from being quadruply confused and rejecting his identity to being multi-positioned and being multi-belonged. And just like that, just like Moses, um, where his Egyptianness, his Midianiteness, his Hebrewness, they were all necessary components of liberation, of participating in the Missio Dei. And just in the same way, our Koreanness, our Japaneseness, our Indianness, our Burmeseness, our Thainess, our Filipinoness, our Americanness, our Chineseness, they're all necessary parts to participate in the plan of liberation and shalom and Missio Dei. And I know I'm running out of time, so I'm going to end with this powerful image of Jesus Christ homeless Jesus Christ. And from far away, it just looks like a statue of a homeless person. But if we look closely, we can see the nail marks on our beloved Savior. And Jesus Christ was the prime example of marginality. He came to us as a stranger, as a visitor, um, as a migrant, right? And he was a migrant during his earthly life, but one can even argue that he was a migrant from heaven. So he was at the very margins and he intentionally entered the state of hyphenated state to be with us. And Jesus was with our ancestors every step of the way. And in the same way, he's going to be with us. So it is my prayer and hope as we walk humbly with our Jesus Christ that he would embolden us to embrace all of our particularities and ambiguities and hyphenated state as we do the mission of Jesus Christ. We here at the Center for Asian American Christianity at Princeton Theological Seminary invite you to join in the ongoing dialogue on Asian American faith, identity, social engagement, and ministry through our newsletter, blog, and upcoming conferences 